If you don't know, I'm one of the pastors at the church called City on a Hill, so I'm always in the city. We are in uh, the CBD, but good to be out here. Uh, good to know Shabu for a few years, uh, spent some time with him, uh, always blessed. I think, is everyone blessed by having Shabu around? Yes, we are. Appreciate you, brother. Uh, and so tonight, as Zach mentioned, we are going to be exploring the cross and work, how the cross shapes or impacts our work. And so like we should be doing every week as Christians, we're going to be reflecting on the implications of the cross. Uh, I know that, uh, well, one of, one of the jobs I didn't mention, uh, one of the, my favorite jobs that I've had was kind of a summer job where it involved uh, shop fitting or shop defitting in, in uh, shopping centers, which meant a lot of destruction uh, and demolition. And I think one of the things that when it comes to thinking about how the, the cross impacts uh, something today, 2,000 years later, how it impacts our lives uh, in this moment, firstly, we perhaps need to do some demolition, need to do some deconstruction of our own approach to work now, and then think about the cross and in light of the cross, reflect on how we should change and how we should think and, and apply the cross to our work today. So we're going to be doing that this evening. Uh, Speaking of work, we're going to do a lot of work, a lot of work in the Scriptures. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, I would love for you to have them open with me. Uh, we're going to try to go through or explore the whole gamut of Scripture tonight, particularly Genesis, the beginning, opening uh, of Genesis, opening of the Scriptures. Also some from the book of Luke to look at the work of Christ. Uh, and then also some from the book of 1 Corinthians to see its implications for today. Uh, before we dive in, I'd love for you to bow your heads and pray with me. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for the chance to open your word. Uh, Lord, let us not take that for granted tonight. Uh, And Lord, we know that when we open your word, we need your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate it to us. And so I pray that you would come and do that now. Uh, Soften our hearts, humble us to sit under your word. And may you come and do what uh, only you can do in us. Turn our hearts to see you as bold, as beautiful, uh, as uh, precious as you truly are. Jesus, I pray that you would be big tonight. Uh, help us see you, help us see the implications of what you have done in the world for us, uh, and may you change us as you will. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We'll start with uh, a story. Growing up, I absolutely loved mysteries. Uh, I loved reading mystery novels. I loved, with my mum, watching murder mysteries. I loved the genre of mystery. And there are many mysteries in the world, aren't there? Some of them serious. Who shot JFK? It's a mystery. What happened to former Prime Minister Harold Holt, who went swimming one day and never returned? It's a mystery. Some of them are less serious. Do the Europeans really know how the rest of the world feels about the Eurovision Song Contest? (laughs) Total mystery. For me, a mystery to me is how did the the restaurant chain Pie Face ever get so popular? They're on every corner in the city. It's crazy. Another mystery, I think, particularly as it relates to work, is why do office printers never seem to work? What is it about the office printer? that there is always a jam, or it is just never working, or it always needs more toner. Has anyone else experienced this? They just never work. It's a mystery. Uh, And I think any attempts to print through a printer in an office are a picture of, perhaps, the brokenness of our world. 
Those of you who were perhaps standing around me as I sang uh, earlier, perhaps also experienced the brokenness of the world. But this is where we're going to start tonight. We're going to start by delving into the brokenness of our world. We're going to have, I kind of got three specific uh, umbrella points that are going to shape and na- help us navigate through the cross and our work tonight. Uh, first is by exploring the brokenness of our work. That's where we're going to start. Then we're going to look at the beauty of Christ's work. And then we're going to see how or the shape of our work today. Uh, so I'd love for you to come with me to just the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Come with me to the opening chapters of Genesis, specifically to Genesis 3. I'll start earlier, but I'll meet you there. Uh, You probably don't need much convincing that something seems to have gone wrong in the world today. Office printers, one example, my voice, another example, but more seriously, every night uh, on the 6 p.m. news, we see evidence of the brokenness in our world. Perhaps you scroll through your Twitter feed, you see or read of brokenness in our world, death, decay, war, conflict. Facebook news feeds come up with statuses and and videos, all expressing that our world is broken. And I want us to learn from where this brokenness started and see from that initial crack how that has affected the rest of history, including what you and I do and how we approach our work. There is nothing new under the sun and the initial effects of the brokenness in our world, are continuing even today. And so we're going to go and examine the beginnings now. And we'll see in the early chapters or the early pages of Genesis that there are uh, three effects of sin on our work. And I just want to kind of pick out three episodes from the early parts of Genesis and just quickly see three effects of sin to uh, point out the brokenness of our work. And so to set it up, let's acknowledge that uh, in Genesis 1, It says, in the beginning, God, and then God spoke creation into existence. And we see very early then that God himself works. God was first and foremost, or the first one, who worked. We could talk about the days and the timing and all that some other time, but let's acknowledge that God himself works. Work is an activity that God has involved himself in. He created out of nothing. He spoke existence into existence. And then he said it was all good. God's work was good. So from the very get-go, we can see that work in and of itself is a good and godly thing. And then God comes to the high point of his creative activity, his work in creating men and women in his image, and he says it's very good. God's work is very good. And then God creates man and woman and he puts them in the garden and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, go forth and subdue the earth. He commissions what he has just been doing, his work, and he says to the man and woman created in his image, you now go forth and work, take dominion over the earth. And they're there to work together complementing one another in fruitfulness, multiplication, subduing of the earth. And so this has been known uh, for centuries, called something called the cultural mandate or the creative mandate, this commission to go forth, multiply and fill the earth, go create culture. And we get from it the truth that you and I, from the very beginning, were created to work. We were made to make. And it's that mandate that continues today. 
And so it is not uh, a stretch at all to say to every one of you in this room, if you were to ask, what am I here for? Why do I exist? One of the right answers, not the only, but one of the right answers would be to say that you were made to work. You were made to create. You were made to make. And whether that's working on building houses, whether that's working on building a family, whether that's working on building an online business, whether that's working to maintain other people's property, whether that's working to destroy other people's property, whether that's working uh, on an iPhone app, whether that's working on a song, whether that's in any capacity, paid or unpaid, employed or unemployed, you are doing one of the core things when you do it that you were made to do. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3 and we see that that creative mandate is damaged but not at all destroyed. Because in Genesis 3, we we, we probably know the story, uh, the woman is hanging out, Adam is who knows where, uh, and she gets tempted. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Here he is, he shows up now. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so the woman is convinced by the serpent, Adam as well, that God is actually a killjoy. And that he is out to box them in. Not letting them express or express themselves, but rather limiting boxing them in from experiencing some sort of fullness of joy that they might experience elsewhere. And so they take and they eat and they rebel and they disobey God and instead do their own thing. And as soon as they do it, did you you hear it? As soon as they do it, they see themselves as naked and suddenly now they're ashamed. And then in verse 7 that I read, the very first creative work that Adam and Eve actually do that's recorded is they're actually knitting together their own underwear. They're making their own Bond's underwear. But these are very uncomfy undies. They're trying to hide themselves from God. And so see now what the damage did. From that first creative mandate, go forth! Be fruitful and multiply. Go and fill the earth. And then they sin and rebel and now they're just kind of trying to hide themselves from God by clothing themselves from what was. Go dream big. Go create culture. Go create cities. Get out there. Go do it. They're now selfish. They're now self-protective. They're now ashamed. And they're now working not for God, but against God, to hide themselves from Him. So the first way sin affected our work was that sin curves us in on ourselves. Sin curves us in on ourselves. We become our first thought in all things that we do, in our work. We start using our work as an idol, not to serve God's purposes, but rather to hide ourselves from Him in idolatry. 
And I can see my heart being curved in on itself all the time. I'll tell you just one example. Whenever I get in my car, suddenly my heart curves in on itself. If there is a car in front of me, that car is in my way. That car is going far too slow. That car needs to move over to the left lane because this right lane is for those people who are going a bit faster than the speed limit. But if the car is behind me, it's not that I forget about the car if the car is behind me because if the car behind me is too close to me, then it's the enemy as well. Or if the car behind me has, has followed me for a couple of turns or made a, a few turns similar to mine, I start thinking, is this guy out to get me? Is this guy following me? And then if there's a car beside me, I'm kind of, if, if they're staying too similar to, to my speed limit, I'm like, does this guy want to drag? Does, does this guy want, is, is he out to compete against me? And I haven't actually considered at all that their life is completely apart from mine and have, they, I have not registered on their radar. No, I'm thinking that their whole life is bent around making mine uncomfortable because my sin, has, my heart has curved in on itself. Martin Luther said this, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. In other words, from that very first fracturing of creation, we are by nature in choice wired not to use our work ethic and the creative mandate to serve God, but to use all things, including God himself and including our work, to serve our own ends. Yeah, it is. Work is given pride of place in our lives. Work becomes our identity, our, our achievements or lack of define us. And we live our lives measuring ourselves by our resume. What should be about expressing who God is, first and foremost, becomes about expressing who we are. And So like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we now run from God to work and try to use it to hide ourselves from Him. Sin curves us in on ourselves. And then if we were to continue in Genesis, to the, the next episode in Genesis, we'd only have to turn uh, a chapter later to Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, we would read about the uh, familiar story of Cain and Abel, the two brothers. Uh, they are the sons of Adam and Eve, and they bring a sacrifice to God. Cain brings his half-heartedly, and it doesn't show honoring faith to God. Abel does show honoring faith to God. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is rejected. Instead of working together to try to go forth and, and subdue the earth, instead Cain lashes out and in jealousy and envy kills his brother Abel. And so we see from this episode that sin also destroys relationships. What was to be a partnership that we were to go forth as fellow humanity and subdue the earth, to work with or alongside one another for God, actually turned out that we started warring against one another. Sin destroys relationships. While we're curved in on ourselves and we think of ourselves first, when that thinking doesn't go well for us, we start lashing out at the people around us. Again, I'm sure you probably... Uh, feel this just as strongly as I, that when we use work to define us, we have to make sure that we're getting ahead of other people. That whatever you do th for work, 
I'm sure here we probably all feel the same emotions. Other people get opportunities you wanted. Other people get praise you thought you deserved. Other people's work is lauded more than yours. Other people's tweets get retweeted more than yours. Other people's Facebook photos attract more likes and comments than yours. Other people's songs that they've written get more traction than yours. Someone else gets the promotion. Other people's reports get less red pen and edits than yours. And instead of working together to create culture and multiplying and subduing, we're left creating jealousy and envy and anger and bitterness and pride. Whereas God creates partners like he did for Adam and teams and relationships and communities, sin decreates or separates and destroys those partnerships and we end up working not with one another but against one another. And because sin curves us in on ourselves, we don't actually even notice it. But instead we start thinking, woe is me, what about me? Who is looking out for me? What about what I created? What about my work? And it's actually so common that psychologists, secular psychologists, have come up with uh, a term to label this. It's called fundamental attribution error, which means that if something bad happens to me or if I do something bad, I will always blame it on uh, the circumstances. The traffic was so bad. I'm under a lot of pressure. The bus made me late. But if something bad happens to someone else or if they uh, contribute to uh, a failure... There must be something in their character that caused that to happen. They must be the type of evil person that could let that happen. We do this in the workplace. Someone else gets more plaudits than me. They are totally prideful and they are just hungry for their own glory, I think. Someone else gets more likes than me. Their work is totally superficial. Someone else got the promotion. They must be sleeping with the editor. Surely there is something going wrong in them to cause them to be succeeding above me. Sin curves us in and sin ruins relationships that were meant to foster work. And then finally, if we were to continue in Genesis to to our third episode in in the early uh, parts of the Bible, we'd come to Genesis chapter 11 and we'd come to the city of Babel. And here we have a city... The people are all of one language and instead of diversity, instead of uh, kind of that beauty in diversity that God intended, there is sameness. Everyone is speaking the same language. Instead of fanning out, go forth and multiply, they're all congregating together in one city. And they say to one another, they're going to build a tower to make a name for themselves, lest they be scattered out throughout the earth. And so we see here that sin gathers glory. And this is at the heart of the problem of being curved in on ourselves as it relates to work. We work for our own glory. We work for our own praise. We're not living out why we were created, which was to express who God is. We're living out of a curved creativity to express ourselves and gather glory for ourselves. And to be honest, I find this so deep within me that it's hard to separate uh, the hunger that I have for my own glory from anything that I do. Maybe you feel the same way. And the, the reason that I kind of 
pursued going into Christian ministry is to be sure because I want to see God glorified. I want to know Jesus and make Jesus known. I want to see people far from Him, outside of the church, outside of relationship with Him, brought into life-giving, eternal relationship with Him. But it didn't take me long as a Christian to know that if I uh, was publicly passionate about that, I would start to look good. People would start to encourage me about it. People would be impressed. That the more I feigned a desire for God, the more I could get glory for myself. And so I can't get away from the wrestle, that nagging feeling that in, that in everything I do, perhaps it is tarnished, perhaps there is a, a tinge of selfishness in that, a hunger for glory. And we feel this. Because this isn't just a me thing, this is a human thing. Because sin wants to gather glory. Maybe it's the wrestle inside of you to to write a song, not so that people might sing it and have their hearts uh, lifted to Jesus, but rather that they might sing it and in hearing it, they might think, man, this is an awesome song. I wonder who wrote it. They're probably a cool person. Or that when you design something or build something, the temptation will not be for people to see it and have their, their minds pointed toward God and, and think about, oh man, how good that He has given us these gifts of, of creativity, but rather people might see it and go, how good is the person who designed this? And so this is the effect of sin. This is the brokenness of our work. We were created to approach work out of love for God and love for others, but sin curves us in. We were created to work alongside one another. Sin destroys relationships and we were created to work to glorify God, but sin seeks to gather glory for itself. So this is the bad news. But it leads us to the beauty of Christ's work. God created out of nothing in Genesis, but in Jesus God is redeeming and recreating out of our brokenness and our sin. I previously heard a story of a, a guy named Winton Marsalis. Born in New Orleans, Winton ruled the Jazz Universe for decades. He won nine Grammys and he enjoyed profound success as a composer, teacher and trumpeter. In 2001, a journalist from the Atlantic was walking, walking through Manhattan and he decided to drop in to a small jazz club called the Village Vanguard. Uh, and During the third song, the trumpeter stepped up to the center to take a solo and the journalist turned to a man sitting next to him and said, Hey, is that, is that Winton Marsalis? The legend? The man replied, I, I, I seriously doubt that. But by the fourth song, the journalist became quite sure. This was the great Winton Marsalis, and he began to play a solo piece that mesmerized the crowd. The reporter says that when he approached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. And the room was silent until, at the most dramatic point of the piece, Someone's phone went off, blaring a random tune in electronic bleeps. People began giggling and picking up their drinks and taking out their own phones, and the whole performance unraveled. The journalist scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. The man with the call got up, took his call in the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. But then what happened next was truly brilliant. Marsalis, who was frozen on stage, began to replay the silly mobile phone melody note for note. Then he repeated it 
And then he began improvising on the tune. And the audience slowly came back to him. The journalist says, In a few minutes he changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off. The resolution was not lost and the ovation was tremendous. You know, this, this world was created to be a, a beautiful song, to declare the glory of God. And yet, God's great work, what He began in those early pages of Genesis, had been interrupted by our brokenness. Sin, evil, death, caused by Adam and Eve, certainly, but contributed to by you and I. And it's ringing in the world that corrupts this good order that God has made and the malady for which we were created and it affects the way you and I work. But God was not and is not overwhelmed. Just as Winton was able to weave the sounds of the interruption back into his piece, so our God went to work, went back to work to take the mess that we made and weave it into his own plans. And we see this most perfectly in the beautiful work of Jesus. It was 2,000 years ago that God Himself entered into human history, taking on flesh. Jesus came on the scene and He came with work to do. We see from throughout the Gospels, His ministry, He was a man with a plan, fully focused on what He had come to do. And it was a work that centered on His own death and resurrection. That's why we're talking about the cross and work tonight. And we can see this in the book of Luke particularly, that Jesus was so focused on going to the cross. Luke's written one of the biographies of Jesus and he wants to kind of, he kind of writes it in a way to to kind of just emphasize how central the cross was. It's in Luke chapter 9 that uh, Jesus first kind of explains that he is, uh, after the confession of Peter, he is coming to die, that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he there will suffer. And after he explains that he is going to go to Jerusalem and and suffer at the cross, he then takes just a couple of the disciples and and there's the transfiguration moment. And it's as if Luke's trying to tell us that, yes, suffering is coming, but after suffering comes glory. And then from that moment, it says that Jesus' face was set like flint to go to Jerusalem. Luke 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. If we were to fast forward to Luke 13, 22, Luke will tell us, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then in Luke 17, 11, Luke will say, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along Samaria and Galilee. Then in Luke 18, 31, again he'll say, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Then in Luke 19, 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And so Luke, so Luke constantly wants to tell us about Jesus' position in relation to Jerusalem because that is why he had come. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem because that's where he would die. Because this is the work that Jesus came to accomplish. And then arriving in Jerusalem, sure enough, Jesus is handed over to the religious leaders and the Romans uh, and the single greatest event in human history, the murder of the Son of God, takes place. And Jesus dies like this. It was now about the sixth hour. This is chapter 23, verse 44. 
And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The work of Christ was to die as the innocent one in the place of the guilty. That rather than being curved in on himself, Jesus pours himself out. Rather than destroying relationships with those around him, Jesus reconciles sinful men and women to a holy God. That rather than trying to gather glory for himself, when Jesus came, he said radical things like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That he had come to glorify not himself, but to glorify God the Father. And so Jesus comes and in his work, he writes all the wrongs that you and I participate in as we approach our work. And in doing so, Jesus received what he didn't deserve, so that by faith in him, you and I might receive what we don't deserve. Let me just drive home that point about faith, because it's important here as we talk about work. Whatever your level of interaction with church or Jesus, you probably aren't surprised that tonight I'm I'm speaking about matters of salvation, matters of thinking about how we live in light of who God is. What might be surprising and what sets Christianity apart from other belief systems is that God reveals himself as the one who works for us. Christianity isn't primarily about us working for God, but rather the great an awesome truth that God himself delights in working for us. And this is so important to get right. We do not work for God or for others in any meaningful way unless we first recognize that God delights to work on our behalf. Isaiah 64.4 says, from of, old, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for Him, who works for those who just trust Him, who works for those who put their faith in Him, not for those who are putting their elbow grease into their relationship with Him, not for those who think that only God, God will only approve of them when they've done enough, when their resume looks good enough. Acts 17, Paul says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So in the work of Jesus, we see that God himself came to us in the flesh, lived a sinless, perfect life that we couldn't, died a gruesome, bloody death in our place for us. And then we honor God we please God by coming to Him, acknowledging Him, acknowledging that we need not work to receive that. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to put our faith in the work of Christ. And the beauty of Jesus' work then brings together that brokenness of our work and it completely changes everything. So let's now consider the shape then of our work today 
Uh, to do so, there's a, a couple of passages in the book of 1 Corinthians that I'd love uh, to check out. Because it's in this book that Paul is writing to a church that is uh, really messed up. It is the black sheep of the early church. Uh, often we kind of think, man, if only we could get back to the early church. We don't want to be like the Corinthians. <laughs> we do not want to get back to the Corinthians. Not everything was friendly. They weren't sharing with everyone. And so we come into this book and, and Paul's kind of trying to show them the implications of what Jesus has done and how that should affect their approach to everything, how that should affect their approach to how they see Christian leaders, to marriage and relationships, to, to taking one another to court. No, the gospel speaks into these things and it speaks in even also to our work. Uh, in the middle of writing to them, he says this incredible thing in uh, chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says something amazing. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the cross, the effects of the cross of Jesus impact now the eternity of these people. That even in the midst of their brokenness, even in the midst of their selfishness, even in the midst of their glory hungering, they are now justified by God. In other words, by trusting in Jesus, these Corinthians, in spite of what they've done in the past, in spite of even what they'll do in the future, God now sees them just that it is just as if I'd lived the life of Jesus. That by faith in Him, I'm declared not guilty. I'm free from the punishment of sin. And that freedom includes being set free from my curved-in heart. And so we see uh, the first effect. Again, I've got three uh, effects of the cross on our work. Number one, the cross shapes our identity. If you're in Jesus... You no longer have to idolize work. You no longer have to use work for your own ends. You no longer have to define yourself by your position description or your resume. I no longer have to be a workaholic to try to hide myself from the brokenness in my life and the consequences of my sin. What Jesus has done for me defines me. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians and he starts instructing them specifically on how this new identity should shape their lives and particularly uh, their work in, in the next chapter, chapter 7, uh, verse 20. He's telling them about, because the question kind of is, well, how should my life practically change in light of becoming a Christian? Paul says this, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, here let him remain with God. 
So there's a blessed separation between who you are and what you do. Because who you are is now tied to what Jesus has done, not what you yourself have done. As Christians, we are not what we do. We are what Christ has done for us. Christ restores our identity. So are you living out of your new identity? Are you defining yourself by your work, your position, how many staff you manage, the budget you get to oversee, or your lack of such things? Or are you defining yourself by Christ's work for you on the cross? And Paul goes on to talk about how we can now treat other people as well. He says uh, in chapter 9, verse 19, he says, Though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Then later, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And so we see, reversing the brokenness of our work, now the cross frees us to work for the good of others. Paul's not seen his work, his, his kind of missionary endeavors, the, the stuff that he is putting his time to as his chance to get ahead, as his chance to squash other people, to, to step on other people up the, up the ladder of success. Instead, Paul pours himself out for the good of others. So who is the annoying colleague at work who you could, right now, in light of the cross, pour yourself out for? Whose good could you seek instead of their harm? How can you approach your work as a means of serving others rather than causing separation from others? This is how we now approach work in light of the cross. Finally, third and finally, probably no surprise, but the cross frees us to not try to gather glory for ourselves, but rather frees us to work for the glory of God. At the end of this long section in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, says those famous words at the end of chapter 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in any, everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The cross has implications on whatever you do. And so there is a freedom here for Christians. We don't need to, to come to God all, all anxious and nervous as if we're going to miss the will of God if we take this job and not that job. Whatever you do. But the instruction is that whatever you do, do it now for the glory of God. No longer do you need to strive to try to build your own kingdom. No longer do you need to try to gather glory for yourself. The cross assures you that you will enter into glory one day and until then you can pour yourself out for the good of others and the glory of God.
So are you a plumber? Work to the glory of God. Are you a homemaker? Work to the glory of God. Are you an accountant? Work to the glory of God. Are you a gardener? Work to the glory of God. Are you unemployed? Work to the glory of God. Whether you get paid to work, whether you don't. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as you do it, remember the cross. Because of the cross, we have a new identity. Because of the cross, we can work for the good of others. Because of the cross, we can work for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you tonight that you show us how to work and you also work in our place for us. We praise you, Lord, that you did not create and then step back from your creation and let us work it out for ourselves, but rather you created, we rebelled, and yet you stepped in, taking on flesh, coming even in the likeness of men, and then living a life of sinless perfection in our place for us, dying a death on the cross in our place for us, and then rising to new life that we might, by faith in you, come to be in you, united with you, so that we can one day see you and enjoy you forever. Lord, we praise you for what the cross has done, that you have put away, as far as the east is from the west, all of our sin and rebellion. And you have put on your own righteousness by faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would live out of that new identity that we have in you. That the way that we approach work, the way that we approach arriving at 9am tomorrow morning, the way that we approach uh, smoker or lunch breaks, or the way that we approach meetings, the way that we manage the way that we submit, Lord, would it all be shaped around gratitude of what you have done, out of a, a new identity that separates us from needing to define ourselves by our work. And rather, would you use us and use the spheres that you have put us in to glorify your own name? Lord, please do this. Please show yourself to work for our colleagues and work for those around us by using us to point them to you. Pray that you would do that for the sake of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to invite, uh, where are they? Courtney, Ben, Zach. Nick's going to come up too. Myself, feel free to come. Give him a round of applause. If you guys want to share those microphones, that'd be awesome. And I'll try to not fall off the stage on this chair. <laughs> and if I do, I'm sure you, you will laugh. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we start with Ben? Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, what do you do work-wise, family? Sure, sure. Um, uh, my wife and I, we have four kids. Um, the oldest is uh, 15. He's uh, down the back running sound stuff. Um, I've um, uh, worked for 20 years doing photography and video stuff and then had a complete change of career 
um, two years ago and become a primary school teacher. Um, so that's uh, a little bit different. Yep, cool. We heard from Nick, we don't need to talk to him anymore. Um, Zach? Um, yeah, I am married to Laura. Don't know, she's probably looking after my kids. Um, Isaiah and Amaya. Isaiah's three, Amaya's one. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I had to babysit the today for a couple of hours, but... <laughs> Just keep going, man. Keep going. Go. Um, I'm a self-employed. I've got a plumbing business, um, which is pretty crappy sometimes, but sometimes we don't deal with poo. Um, and, yeah, it's good. Cool. Courtney? Um, at current, I'm not working. Um, I am a full-time student, but previous to that, I was working in retail for about seven years. And then next year, I'll be starting um, in a new job after I finish my degree in a corporate sort of setting. Cool. So you've been hearing a little bit about what Nick was sharing and in your own journeys, and this is, anyone can jump in. Um, have you viewed work in the past um, before knowing Jesus and how has that changed? Uh, these days um, I think one thing my dad said to me when I f the first like I was in year nine at school and he said to me that um, I was going into work experience at a pet shop which is actually worse than plumbing like you gotta <laughs> you gotta clean out the um, the kitten cages and they're they 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 crap on the cage, and it's baked on, and you you're scrubbing it off. It's shocking. But he said to me like he dropped. I don't know why he dropped me off because it was never there for me. But like with anything, um, like it would usually be. It's not a counselling session. Just, <laughs> it's, just it's just the heart. It's just coming out. I can't stop it. Um, now, so he dropped me off, and he said, "You know what." Just make sure you've got a like the right attitude, and then everything else can be trained in. And that was like full on a divine moment. Like I feel like it was God speaking through him because he's not usually that wise. So, um, but that was good. Anybody else? What What about your own Ben? I I guess I could um, relate to what was shared about working um, with all your effort for the Lord. Um, uh, there's a similar verse in Colossians and, and a few verses before that it says don't work um, giving eye service so don't just work when the boss is watching you mm. uh, oh quick everyone the boss is watching we better look busy um, but you're actually working for the Lord um, and um, you know and that you're just fair in, in your dealings and you know if you're you know a bit late to work for whatever reason then add that time on later on and just being fair and loyal and trustworthy and truthful and that sort of stuff. So, great. In your different workplaces, whether if it's um, been retail or whether if it's as a teacher, uh, what's been um, what's been tempting uh, to forget? How do you represent God in those workplaces? Uh, is it tempting at all for you guys? That uh, maybe even Nick with being in ministry. Yeah. Does this still work? Uh, I find the temptation. Um, it's just always, I think, in everything in life, but particularly in work, Christian ministry or, or not, uh, to 
just think it's all about the, the, the productivity and the, the doings, the, the emails and being in that kind of stuff uh, and neglect the, the people work. Uh, that yeah, kind of what I share, the relationships are, are crucial. Uh, and particularly for me with the, I mean, the, my job description is in the Bible. Uh, so it's, it's hard to get away from that. Uh, and so it's always a, an encouragement seeing that, but yeah, always a temptation to kind of uh, bring it in and, and do the easiness behind the keyboard and the laptop uh, and not kind of exert blessing outside. Anyone else? Well, I was going to say sometimes it can be easy to wear a different hat depending on where you are. In, in your workplace, you might conduct yourself in a really, I don't know, professional manner or really laid-back manner or you're trying to put on a front to maybe please the people around you and then maybe when you go to church you're that complete different person again and everything you say you know is direct from scripture and you're quoting that but then at work you know you're quoting the mission statement or what have you but you're not really being true to I guess your own self in that mm. as well. I think with me and particularly with construction um there's a lot of temptation to just pull shortcuts wherever you can and like and that may be encouraged by the enticement of you know the the quicker you do the job the more money you're going to make um and you know the client's not necessarily going to realize anyway because they don't really know what to expect and most of plumbing these days is is buried or it's behind walls or you can't see it as long as you turn the tap and it comes out hot if you turn the hot tap on or if it's cold you turn the cold tap on or if you've got a shower mixer and you want to mix and you want it that right temperature that's all they sort of care about as long as you flush the toilet and it all goes away then it's a good job but there's a lot of shortcuts and a lot of shifty things you can pull and um there's a lot of shifty guys out there but i suppose it's um like i got really set an example for my guys particularly in my company who know i'm a christian sort of set that example that, um, you know, it's, it's not worth the compromise to actually, you know, take the shortcuts to try and make more money or whatever. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, the video production industry uh, can be a very challenging one for Christians. Um, I know that it's often a very um, glamorised and romantic industry for young people to sort of go into. Um, but um, I guess I used to tell people I was trying to avoid two-thirds of the industry because um, of the sort of shows or films that I, I didn't want to be involved in uh, for fear of moral conflict. And um, like what was mentioned before, it can be a real challenge to um, look like a non-Christian at work and, and make sure you're looking like a Christian at, at church. Um, so... I guess I, yeah, I guess I would turn things down, uh, turn jobs down that, um, you know, you might get a, a call from the agency and say, oh, there's a job on and um, show up at this time and can I just ask what it is? Uh, actually, I don't really want to do that job. Um, so you'd actually turn down work and you'd um, cheese off camera guys and you wouldn't hear from them again. So I guess you had to sort of make, um, make that decision. Um, and working in non-Christian places, I guess it's a challenge also. How much do you say? When do you witness? And is that an opportunity? Is it the wrong time? Um, is it okay to stop and chat for 20 minutes while we're meant to be working? 
Um, so, yeah, there's other challenges there too. On that note, sorry, yeah, it just came up to my head is that as you look at your own journey, whether if it's ministry or plumbing or uh, whatever format God's placed you in, uh, has it been challenging to be faithful to the gospel, to be a faithful witness? Uh, can you think of times where you're like, that, that could mean you could lose your job? Yeah, I've lost a couple of jobs um, through witnessing at work. Um, one of them it was uh, for a uh, wedding photographer, and um, the wife um, was very interested in the Bible, and the husband wasn't. He had a laser disc collection of horror movies as long as your arm, and um, he was certainly not wanting to talk about anything to do with the Bible or God, um, but the wife was, and she was sort of taking herself to church and. She had a couple of dreams and asked me what I thought they meant. And I said, well, it's really clear. God's giving you an opportunity to respond to him. And she'd asked me questions about the Bible. Um, and he wasn't too happy about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, one day it sort of came to the crunch and, um, you know, got to work a couple of minutes late. And they said, right, you're sacked. Okay, right, when am I sacked? Oh, once you finish all this work and then you can... Then you're dismissed. I go, okay. And then I'd sort of put in the hardest day of work I had for a long time. Um, but then later that night, thought, well, actually, they can't sack me like that. There's no warnings. So I went in the next day and, and said, actually, I resign. They said, no, you can't because I sacked you. So actually, you can't sack me like that. Uh, I'm going to resign. So um, the husband wasn't too happy about it and um, stormed down and said, you... Christians are more money-hungry than the Jews. Take your 30 pieces of silver and get out of here. Oh, wow. and, um, and I just, it's like I just knew not to say a word. And um, I was riding the tram home and opened the Bible and just had a psalm that just exactly spoke to, to me at that time. And, um, yeah, so you sometimes... But then the Lord just moves you on. He has something else prepared for you, so... About a year later, and he basically said, um, I'll have people lining up here to get your job tomorrow. You, you'll only work at McDonald's. You won't do anything better than that. And uh, didn't say a word. Just thought the Lord's my defence. And um, about a year later, um, went to a cinematographer's awards ceremony to collect um, an award and walked past him sitting at the table right at the front and thought, well, the Lord's... My defence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, when you think about people here who might be wrestling with faith and work and how to keep um, God centre, anything comes to mind that you could encourage people, whether if it's about to start a new job in that season of uh, change or um, just experience, what, what is there anything that you would like to share? Um, well, for me, I, I feel um, incredibly just blessed in life in general, particularly at the moment. Um, and I think all the great work that God has been doing in my life um, by natural extension is just an overflow in my conversation at the moment. And um, being engaged at the moment, um, people often in my workplace have been asking me about the wedding details. Um, but Nathan and I are having a, a really, really small wedding. So rather than... I guess uh, centerpieces, the centerpiece of sort of our wedding is very much um, the verse that Shibri will be speaking on um, and things like our vows. So 
I've been given such a great opportunity in my engagement period to when weddings come up with customers because I was working retail or the people in my workplace, I was really able to talk about some of those really cool things and then sort of describe what a Christian marriage is and talk about Christianity aside from the media headlines and the snippets and same sort of in a university setting as well because um, it quickly comes up that I'm engaged because not many people at uni are um, so I get that opportunity to talk about it and even in my interview for the job that I have next year as well so I think if you sort of put God at the center of your life it's going to be a natural conversation that you have with the people in your workplace anyhow and it will be genuine and natural for you um, I'm quite a relational person so getting alongside people and talking about where they're at and um, using your own God-given life experiences to um, buddy up alongside people, that really works for me. Whereas maybe for some of you it's playing Christian soccer or um, inviting someone over for dinner with your family and then leading with grace and just finding sort of what works for you and not trying to do a one-size-fits-all because someone told you that that worked for them. And um, I guess just God will give you the cues and just sort of run with it, even if you feel hot under the collar at first, it gets more natural. So, yeah, that's my little tip. That's great. Um, I suppose I've just got an encouragement for um, people who do own their own business, if there's anyone here who does. Um, I've, I've only had my own business for three years, but in that three years I've worked with a lot of other Christian businessmen and it's actually been a massive discouragement for me because I've seen like them in the Christian setting and then I've seen them at work and like we're talking about the cross and work and it, there's a massive like you know like a line in their lives between church and work like they're completely different people and I'm just like what is going on here but I think what I've been realizing is that um a lot of people who maybe you're a Christian, you're in your own business, um, you do your church thing on your Sunday and, and on your weekend, but then your business, you know, well, that's something, that's that's my little thing that I've done, you know. And and, and what Nick was saying, like, you know, if, you, if you're working for the glory for yourself, then you're building up your little kingdom, your little business, and any success that that business has you're patting yourself on the back rather than, I think, the right attitude in what Nick was saying, like, do everything to the glory of God. And then in that way, if your business succeeds, it probably will because God's going to bless it if you're giving glory to him. Um, you know, people are going to notice that. Um, so, yeah, I just encourage anyone who owns their own business to, um, yeah, just try and, to the best of your ability, give the glory to God and um, not focus on, you know, building up that kingdom and, and like, um, doing it all in your own strength, but rather um, trusting in God that, you know, you might have to sacrifice, say, thirty or $40,000 to do a job ethically. It's worth it in the long run. Um, and, yeah, you might save ten grand by doing a shortcut and no one's going to see it. God will see it. Um, 
but it's definitely worthwhile. And at the end of the day, um, when like our lives are taken from us and we may have stored up all these treasures on the earth, like they mean absolutely nothing. Um, mm, yeah. That's good, man. Good. Ben, Nick, anything? I think uh, undergirding a lot of what Zach said uh, is that Jesus isn't just Lord on Sunday. Uh, there isn't a square inch on this planet over which the Lord Jesus cannot say, mine, uh, I own it, and he is Lord over it, um, which means that there's a significance to our work, whatever we do. There's no kind of sacred, secular divide that we like to put up. Um, the, I know Martin Luther had a great quote about the, the priest, the cobbler, and the street sweeper are all on the same level, uh, all doing as significant work as one another. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'd just love you to be encouraged that whatever you are doing, uh, it is significant and is used, you know, off the, the back of the kind of creative mandate uh, to go forth and multiply, whether it's building a company uh, like Zach, whether it's serving uh, another company, whether it's just being a Christian employee uh, in uh, a business um, Whatever it is, uh, and whatever you know, you are in the in the kind of food chain of uh, the organisation. Uh, it is significant uh, because it's it's redeemed by you ha- having been redeemed in Christ. That's good. Any last words, Ben? I guess uh, you know when you go to work and you don't swear like everybody else, that's a witness. And you go to work and you're actually trustworthy, that's a witness. And you go to work and you don't lie for the boss, and that's a witness. Mm. Um, I guess um, the challenge was, I might, you know, you, you'd start your new day and you'd pray, Lord, give me something, someone to talk to today, you know, to witness for you. And there, some days that would be no opportunities. Other days, um, there'd be small opportunities. Um, and there was a guy, one guy I used to work with. Um, we'd sort of have our, you know, he was a hardened atheist. We'd sort of have our annual chat in the tea room. Um, I wish it was more often than that, but it wasn't. Um, because it just didn't come up, but um, uh, I guess talking in, in a respectful way. But sometimes, you know, you just pray for some people for years and you only have tiny little snippets of conversation from time to time and you just got to keep praying. And you can pray that the Lord will send other Christians across their path. And sometimes you might work for someone with someone for a few years and then you never see them again and, and you, just, um, you just pray for them. So... And you just do the little bit that, that you're meant to. You're not, you know, it's like, why isn't everyone wanting to have an altar call at work? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, guys, I hope you've been encouraged that um, everything that we do, we do it for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink, for the, we do it for the glory of God. I hope you've been getting that message. Um, uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the team up very briefly. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs as we wrap up our night. Um, I'm just aware of the time. Um, they've also served for the glory of God, so I'm going to leave it up to Luke if he wants to do more than two songs. Um, but uh, we, we're going to sing and uh, we're going to worship Jesus uh, with, uh, for his name and for his glory. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time together. We pray as we sing these songs, uh, may you be glorified uh, in all aspects. May we be remembering wherever we are, whether we eat or drink, uh, whether we are a plumber or whether we're about to start a new job or we're a teacher, whether we're a mum at home, 
uh, whether we are in ministry, we're all doing it for your glory, uh, for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen.